That is our prayer this morning as we open God's Word together to Revelation chapter 14. I invite you to join me there. Revelation chapter 14, that God would speak to us this morning, His church, through His holy written Word, showing us, declaring to us the glories and the excellencies of Christ Jesus, declaring for us the the wonder of the Gospel that we might evaluate our own hearts and lives in light of God's own Word. Not our own perceptions, not our own thoughts, not our own philosophies, but by God's own holy Word. I'm sure many of you grew up reading the old Charles Schultz comic entitled Peanuts, right? the Charlie Brown comic. There's an old, old uh, comic strip where Charlie Brown is being approached by his sister Sally. And Sally comes up and says to him, Chuck, Charlie, I've, I've memorized the Bible verses. We were supposed to memorize it for Sunday. And Charlie Brown asks, what verse? To which Sally replies, well, now I don't know. You made me forget. Maybe it was something Moses said, or maybe it was something from the book of re-evaluation. And of course, by book of re-evaluation, she's mispronouncing the book of Revelation. But that's not a bad nickname for the book of Revelation. The book of reevaluation, because that's really precisely what it's intended to do, what it's intended to be in our lives. It's supposed to make us look at the world and to look at our lives within this crazy world that we live in and reevaluate how I understand what's going on around me. Reevaluate my life in light of what Revelation teaches me about Christ sovereignly reigning victoriously on His throne over all things. I've said since the start of this series that I've come to the conviction that the book of Revelation is one of the most practical books in the entire Bible because it's really cultivating within us a worldview. We've been robbed of this to the degree that we've seen Revelation as a book that is for some unforeseen date in the future with really no practical implications for us today. It is written for us today. It deals with the time period in which we are living. And it teaches us the reality of life lived under the reign of Jesus Christ. That He is on His throne. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is reigning sovereignly over all things according to the eternal purposes of God. The question is, is that the perspective we wake up each morning and live with? as we come upon various situations and circumstances in life, is that the perception that we, and the perspective that we immediately apply? Christ is on His throne. Perhaps like those Christians of the first century in those seven churches of Asia Minor, perhaps our perspective has become skewed, distorted, maybe because of suffering. Maybe our perspective has become warped because of just disappointment in life. Maybe our perspective has become twisted because of pride in us. We see not God on the throne, but us. And all of life revolving around me. Possibly we've lost sight of the real trajectory of human history, that all of history is pointing to a determined end. And it's all about God. It's all about His glory. It's all about face-to-face worshiping, exalting Jesus Christ for all eternity. 
And Jesus knows that's a real danger for Christians both in the first century and in today in the 21st century. And so in kindness and in wisdom, Jesus has given us the book of re-evaluation to remind us of the great reality of who Christ is, of who his people are in him, to show us that at the center of all of life is Christ reigning and ruling over all things. And that even on our worst day, Christ is enthroned, ruling and presiding over all things. And that is the concern of our text this morning as we've made our way into Revelation chapter 14. With great urgency, considerable urgency, Revelation 14 is about re-evaluating our lives. Re-evaluating. No matter how mature you are or think you are, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, Revelation 14 aims for all of us to re-evaluate our lives in light of this fact. Jesus' coming. Jesus' final coming. And a picture we're going to see later in this chapter, the harvest of all things. He's coming again. Re-evaluate now, Christian, before it's too late. Revelation 14 communicates to us three visions. We looked at the first of these visions last week in verses 1 through 5. The vision of those saints in glory, right? It's a, it fast forwards to a picture uh, for, for the suffering saints today to be encouraged by looking and seeing not one of Christ's sheep have been lost. Look around the throne. 144,000 symbolic of every last one of them. They're around the throne singing a new song. He's done it. He's accomplished it. That's the first vision. The second vision vision runs from verses 6 through 13. And it's a warning proclamation from three different angels who come, and really they have the same message, the same purpose. A message of warning, a sobering, urgent message of warning. And then the third vision comes down in verses 14 through 20, the vision of the great harvest of the earth. Those are the three visions. And taken collectively, The message is sobering. The message is discriminatory. The message is this, that in every group of people, in every church, there is a dividing line, an invisible dividing line. And on one side of the line, you have true followers of the Lamb. And on the other side of the line, you have true followers of the beast. In every group, in every church, there is a dividing line. And there is both true followers of the Lamb and true followers of the beast. And what in this room even sets these two groups apart is what John refers to as the the eternal gospel. And that's what we're looking at this morning, the title of the message, God's Eternal Gospel. Revelation 14 teaches us there is this line of division that runs throughout the world, 
and it will culminate in a final harvest, verses 14 through 20, when at the king's instruction, the angels put their sickles into the world, and there will be final judgment. Again, this is another rotation around the same thing we've been seeing in the seven seals and the seven trumpets. This is now from heaven's perspective. We're seeing the same thing. We're going to look at final judgment again. But what makes this so sobering and so vital for every one of us this morning is this. This is a sure conclusion to things. On what side do I stand? On what side of God's eternal gospel am I on? Am I a follower of the Lamb or am I a follower of the dragon, of Satan? And if I am a follower of the beast, how in the world can I come out from under that, across from that line over to the kingdom of the Lamb? Well, that's what verses 6 through 13 are driving home to us. Covenant Life Church, the harvest is coming. The Son of Man sits with sickle in hand right now, ready to judge. This morning, there is nothing more important than for you and I to come to the book of Revelation and to reevaluate objectively, not by our own experience, not by, well, I know this about myself. That won't work. Jesus himself warned about that. Many will say in that day, I know this about myself. I did this, that, and the other. And he says what? Depart from me. Your perspective on yourself was wrong. The book of reevaluation has never been more real to us than as we look together at Revelation chapter 14. Our focus this morning will be only on the message of the first angel in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So this first angel comes, and it's very similar to the message we're going to see from the other two angels in the subsequent verses. He comes with a message of judgment. But notice this. The message of judgment in verses 6 and 7, this won't be true of later passages, in this passage is mingled with grace. For here, as this angel comes with a message of coming judgment, he gives what appears to be one final opportunity to the earth dwellers to reevaluate which side of the line are they on, true followers of the Lamb or true followers of the beast. And we're told here that this angel flying directly overhead delivers John's own words, verse 6, quote, an eternal gospel to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. It's a universal message. And it is worth noting, he doesn't just say gospel, but the eternal gospel. What this denotes for us this morning, in the context of this passage, which is about coming final judgment, is that inarguably, the greatest need in the world today and every day is that men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, 
should know the gospel of Jesus Christ, believe it, and show evidence of having been delivered by it. Let me say that again. Because most times when we think about the gospel, we have one or two aspects of that. It's the third that this passage is concerned about. The greatest need in the world today is men and women, boys and girls, knowing the gospel. Most would check that box, believing the gospel, and they would check that box. And third, showing evidence that they've been delivered by its power. That's what has to be evaluated. That is their objective evidence in my life that goes beyond, well, I know. I remember I did this. I remember the day I believed. Why is it that people don't believe to the point of being modified, being changed by the gospel? I think part of the answer is because, and again, I say part of the answer, part of the answer is because there's a lot of confusion with regard to what the gospel is. A lot of confusion even in the church. What's urgently necessary for us this morning is that we who in this room would all, I think, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth and I don't want to speak for the Holy Spirit, but those in this room who profess to be the people of God, we of all people must be absolutely clear what the gospel is. And so this morning, I want to look at verses 6 and 7 by way of asking and answering two questions. If we must know what the gospel is, number one, what is the eternal gospel? And notice John uses a very specific modifier there, eternal gospel. What is the eternal gospel? And then secondly, what are the implications of the eternal gospel on a soul that has, that has been invaded by the eternal gospel? What are the objective implications on a soul that has been invaded by this eternal gospel? Those are the two questions we must give attention to this morning because of the urgency of the context. The king is ready at any moment to bring final judgment. So the first of those questions, what is the eternal gospel? Part of our confusion about answering that question, part of our confusion about the gospel comes the, from the fact that our vision of the gospel oftentimes is far too narrow. It's far too small. It focuses only upon one aspect of the full gospel. Now, it focuses upon a very important aspect the most important aspect, the central component of the gospel, but it tends to focus only upon one aspect of it. And whether we realize it or not, and I pray we will by the end of the message, that's, that's a problem. We are all familiar with that one narrow piece of the gospel. We call it oftentimes the simple gospel. The simple gospel approach that many people address, uh, embrace that want to narrow the gospel down to uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or to force spiritual laws as a wrapper around the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he's done and, 
in five or ten minutes. We go over those, those four spiritual laws in, in just a matter of two, three, four minutes. You know, you can be converted. There's a saying, what you win them with is what you win them to. And I think a shallow understanding of the gospel produces very shallow Christians. Now again, I'm not drawing from personal opinion. Jesus calls the gospel an eternal gospel. Jesus is drawing on a wide canvas to say, as you reevaluate, you need to reevaluate in light of the whole. I would hope that we reject a shallow understanding of the gospel, not because it's incorrect, but because it's, 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 not, the full, it's not the fullness of it. The fullness of God's gospel, God paints it on a very wide canvas for us. And yes, the central component is Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead. But the fullness of the gospel is as big as the Bible itself. The gospel is not contained in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel is revealed to us in Genesis to Revelation, but it actually, the gospel extends out into eternity past and into eternity future. And that's why Jesus calls it an eternal gospel. And it's only as we capture the fullness of the gospel on the wide canvas that God lays out for us that our hearts will be filled with awe and reverence and worship and, and contemplation to my goodness in light of the fullness of this. I must make my calling and election sure today. If we narrow it down to God has a wonderful plan for your life, here's Jesus repent and believe, then we'll keep coming back to that. And please don't hear me saying that's wrong, but we'll miss how does that piece fit into the fullness of the gospel and what God intended. Again, I've tried to pick my words well, and I may not be doing so. A simple communication of the gospel is desirable but neglecting to communicate the whole gospel is insufficient. And I fear that's where a lot of our confusion is. We know a part of it well, but we don't know the fullness of it. We don't know the eternal gospel. So what is the eternal gospel? Here's my answer. The gospel is everything that our triune God has revealed to us about himself and the good news that he in his triune being has done everything necessary to save us ultimately from sin and its consequences and to bring us to himself. And so much of the focus on the eternal gospel is on the eternal God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The eternal gospel is all that the triune God has done. All that the triune God has revealed about the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit to take a sinner and, and to do everything that's necessary to bring that sinner out of sin, out of its consequences, and to bring that sinner eternally unto God. That's the eternal gospel. It begins with God the Father, who not just at Calvary, 
But long before Calvary, long before, further back than our minds can conceive, in eternity past, God the Father purposed and planned and arranged for His glory a salvation of a people who do not deserve it unto Himself. He was driven by, not by a love first and foremost by the sinner, it was a first and foremost, a love for His own glory. To go public with His glory. To maximize His glory. And in eternity past, the the Father has this, Isaac Ambrose calls it a, a, a program in which He and the Son and the Spirit come together to plan out for their glory. What would most glorify them? How about we take unworthy, undesiring people who hate us and don't want us and we turn them by grace into a people who want us and love us and fear us and worship us with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. They can't do it. We do it all for them. So God the Father purposed and planned before the foundation of the world for His glory, how He could be both the just, the one who would punish the sinners, and the justifier, how He would make them unto Himself. And then you have God the Son, who in fulfillment of this covenant with the Father, again, not at Calvary, in eternity past, in eternity past, covenanted, In agreement, he embraced the will of the Father, the architect, that he would fulfill the Father's plans. And so in time, he became incarnate. In time, he became human. In time, he lived the life we should have lived. In time, he went to the cross and died the death that that we deserve to die according to the will of the Father in eternity past for his glory. And God according to his eternal plans, raised that Christ from the dead in victory over Satan and sin and death and made it possible through the death of Christ for your and my sins to be forgiven and for us to be reconciled with God. And then the lost piece of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables man to respond how the Father has ordained Man must respond in order to appropriate Christ in repentance and faith. We read in Ephesians 2 that that faith is a gift of God. It's not something welled up in man that man can just muster up enough. It's a gift that God gives. And it's the Holy Spirit who enables man to respond to the good news that God in the Father and the Son has done everything necessary. for sins to be forgiven and to allow a soul to believe, to repent and to profess faith in Jesus Christ. While the gospel is surely for the good of mankind, ultimately it has always been for the glory of God. It has always been about the glory of God.
And that's why he calls it an eternal gospel. It's not just Calvary. And I cringe when I say that because I'm, I'm sure some of you, are you minimizing Calvary? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the gospel is painted on a much wider canvas. And to the extent we only focus on a piece of it, even though it is the centerpiece and the apex of it, God is robbed of glory if we don't paint the fullness of it and understand it's an eternal gospel. So, what makes it eternal? We've already begun hitting on it. What's the uniqueness of this eternal gospel? It begins with this. The proclamation of this angel to every tribe, tongue, nation, right? Universal message. The eternal gospel. The angel is saying this. There's no other message you need to listen to. The fact that this is an eternal gospel means there's no world philosophy, there's no theory, there's no point of view, there's nothing else that can be described as eternal. Man in time has been raised up and may come up with thoughts and wisdom and ideas, but nothing published in a book outside of this book is an eternal gospel, an eternal message. This gospel is set apart as unique from every other message in the world. It's made eternal. I've got a couple of reasons here. The mere fact that it's eternal means that there are an eternal number of reasons why. But here's a few. What makes the gospel eternal is because God, the author and architect of it all, is eternal. This is what puts the message of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, in its own category. It's not the gospel of Abraham. It's not the gospel of, of Paul. It's not the gospel of Peter. It's not the gospel of any man who's ever walked the earth. It's the gospel of God. It's the word of God. The author of Hebrews in chapter 1 puts it this way, long ago at many times and in many ways, God, eternal God, triune God, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Well, whether he was speaking through prophets or whether he was speaking through Christ, the point is it has always been God who's speaking. In his word, in his gospel, it is God who's speaking. And that God has no boundaries. That God has no limitations in time. That God is eternal. We cannot understand the gospel in its fullness unless we understand this truth. It is authored to us by an eternal God, and the gospel therefore becomes an eternal gospel. Men are always having to adapt to their surroundings. Men, worldly men, religious men, are constantly having to come up and prepare new schemes, new ideas, new messages, New programs, new ideas. Why? Because things around us are changing. They're adapting. Well, even as things around us in time are changing, the gospel is transcendent. It's eternal. It is able to speak to every change in time, in centuries, in, 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 in the different things, because the gospel is transcendent. It's eternal. 
It was planned before the foundation of the world by an eternal God who knows the beginning from the ends. Not just because He sees the future, but because He's sovereign over the future. Because in eternity past, He planned and declared every day, every hour, every person, every hair on our head, our birthday, our death day. He is sovereign over it. And this gospel is His eternal gospel that is able to meet the need of every change and alteration in the world that goes on around us. We've got to see how unlike man this is. Man is constantly formulating a three-year plan, a five-year plan, a ten-year plan. Nothing wrong with that, but then constantly he's having to go back and change that three-year plan and change that five-year plan and change that ten-year plan. Why? Because he's not sovereign. His message, his ideas are temporal. His ideas are limited by what he knows, by what he sees. And even what he sees, he can interpret the wrong way because he's fallible. But God is eternal. God transcends time. God is sovereign over the the beginning to the end and everything in between. He has no lacking or inability in his knowledge. He's omniscient. He doesn't change. His message doesn't change. And in the gospel, he's given us his unchanging plan and program for his glory in every age. Because God is eternal, his gospel must be eternal. It doesn't come from the minds of men, nor does God need the minds of men to simplify it or to make it more palatable or to make it more understandable. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to proclaim what glorifies God the most, His purposes, His plans. Another reason this is an eternal gospel, not only because God is eternal, but Christ is eternal. Another reason this is an eternal gospel is because the one who worked it out at the cross, out Calvary, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, He too is eternal. The gospel itself is not dependent upon the work of men. It's dependent upon the eternal Son of God. The gospel, though it was planned in eternity past for the glory of God, it is very much centered upon Jesus Christ. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1. It's very much centered upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've read in Revelation, Christ is is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How is that possible? Not a one of us in this room is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How is that possible? Because he's eternal. He's transcendent. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by by as the days go on. He's unchanging. He's eternal. The author of Hebrews hits on this point when he talks about the centrality of Christ as our great high priest in contrast to other high priests. In Hebrews 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. What are you saying there? There constantly had to be a new priest to come around because they kept dying. One died off, we need another one. Another one died off, we need another one. But Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He is, and consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he lives to make intercession. What's the point there? Christ is eternal. He's our eternal high priest. 
And that's why he's able to save everyone in every generation, whether the 1st century, whether the 10th century, or the 21st century. He is sufficient because he is eternal. Yes, he came into eternity in time. Yes, he took on a body. Yes, he entered in flesh. But he never ceased to be eternal God. He simply hid that glory. He hid the glory of his eternality, the signs of eternality in his body. But after his death and resurrection, he returned into that eternity where he presently abides at the right hand of the Father, the same as he's always been. In eternity past, yesterday, today in time, and forever when time is no more. Can we say that about any other man? Any other quote-unquote savior? Any, uh, anyone else who might step forward as a great man in history? No. Every great leader, great politician, great philosopher, great religious leader comes and goes. Another reason this is an eternal gospel is because through the ages, man's inherent constitution never changes. Who we are we don't change. The whole message of the Bible is that man and woman doesn't change. We may change outward appearance, right? The clothes we wear, may, we, we, we dress differently from first century, right? Our appearance may change, but the constitution of man, who we are, in and of ourselves, that doesn't change. We are, man's sins are still the same. Man's desires are still the same. There's nothing new under the sun. And so God's eternal gospel is sufficient for every age, for every man in every century. Because at the core of our being, we are, we are conceived in sin, in rebellion against God. And that's, that's not unique to some of us. That's all of us. Whether living in B.C., before Christ, or the 1st century, or the 16th century, or the 21st century. God knew before the foundation of the world that all men would be the same in their rebellion against Him. And therefore, His gospel is an eternal gospel, an eternal message, sufficient in every generation. And I'll give you one more reason why this is an eternal gospel, because God is eternal, Christ is eternal, man's constitution does not change in and of ourselves. And the last one is because Christ crucified is the only way for man's problem to be overcome. And that was ordained in eternity past. How in the world can God be just and justifier Paul calls the gospel the wisdom and power of God. Why does he say that? Because no man has the wisdom to come up how a God who has been infinitely offended by sin could also justify that very one. It requires nothing less than the wisdom of God. And then, how do you execute that? So that actually a sinner who has in time sinned against God might actually have their sins forgiven. It requires nothing less than the power of God in the atonement. The gospel is the wisdom and power of our eternal God. Christ is the only answer to it. There is no plan B. 
There is no plan A.1, Christ plus good works, Christ plus the law. Right, boys and girls? The law doesn't do anything to bring us closer to God. It's Christ alone. God in eternity past determined only Christ could unlock the gates of his presence to allow sinners into that presence. Man couldn't do this. The whole Old Testament, I would argue, is really about making this point. You can give man the law, it won't help him. You can give man his moral exhortation, it won't help him. You can give man the greatest teachers, it won't help him. You can give man and raise up the best prophets. The problem is his heart. The problem is a heart that man cannot change. Man is born in sin. Man is born in iniquity. He's conceived impure. Man cannot change this about himself. But nothing is impossible with God. There is one way for man's heart to be changed and it is the eternal wisdom and power of God to send his son into the earth to go to the cross and die the death that we deserve to die, to take the wrath of God upon his own shoulders, upon his own flesh, so that God's wrath is satisfied and those that Christ came to save, their sins can be forgiven because their, God's wrath, which was for them, has been placed on another, a substitute in their place. And this makes God just, he pours out his wrath on deserving sin and the justifier because he makes a way of escape through his son Jesus. This is why the angel, with the looming context of Christ on his throne with the sickle for a final judgment ready to be put in, comes in and he announces not just the gospel, God's eternal gospel. The good news that our eternal triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, He has done everything for His glory to save ultimately from sin and its consequences and to bring us to Himself. This is a God-glorifying message that the angel brings. And from these angels who sit around the throne of God, worshiping him day and night, we would expect nothing less. Any message that doesn't preeminently glorify God is not worthy of God. So that's what is the eternal gospel. It's the wide canvas, the fullness of what our God has done. Yes, in Calvary. Oh, but we rob him of his glory if we don't play it out. And eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, everything necessary He has done to bring a sinner to Himself forgiven. Well, the second question then, in light of this eternal gospel, the fullness of it, what are the implications? What's the impact of the eternal gospel when it invades a soul? I said at the beginning, and I can only pray God gives me clarity and you ears to hear. A shallow presentation of the gospel 
will produce shallow professing Christians. What about when we present the fullness of the gospel? The angel brings three very specific effects. Verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The angel's presenting the gospel here. He's presenting it in terms of the wide canvas. Not, it, it, you may look at it and say, he's not presenting the gospel here. There's no mention of atonement. There's no mention of cross. That's because when we think of gospel, we think narrow. The eternal gospel is about the glory of God. The eternal gospel is about what God has done to turn people to himself. And the effect of the eternal gospel on a soul when it's been invaded is to turn the heart Godward. To fear God. To glorify God. And to worship God. And I commend to you where that's not objectively the reality of a soul. The fullness of the gospel has not been received. The gospel is not, first and foremost, about making converts. Not first and foremost. It's first and foremost about glorifying God. Turning God-haters into God-fearers. God-worshippers. God-glorifiers. Conversion is the means for that to happen. The book of re-evaluation. Probably you're like me when you re-evaluate. I remember a time I did this, that, and the other. I repented. I professed faith. I walked the aisle. I'm not questioning that. But neither is the angel upholding that as the evidence of true conversion. The eternal gospel produces, number one, fear of God. Coming to life church, let me ask you, are you fearing God? The angel says with a loud voice, fear God. What does it mean? The old Puritan writer John Brown says this, to fear God is to esteem the smiles and the frowns of God to be of greater value than the smiles and frowns of men. To esteem the frowns and smiles of God of greater value than the frowns and smiles of men. It means we put all of our lives around the orbit of God. He is central. He is utmost in our affections. And all of my daily practical living, my parenting, my, my, my marriage, my finances, my attitudes, my perceptions, my perspective, all of it is wrapped around what pleases God. It means not just, fearing God is not just one piece of the pile of my life on a Sunday morning revolves around God. It means every piece of the pie of my life revolves around God and pleasing Him, making Him smile, honoring Him. Not because I earn favor by making Him smile, but because my heart has been converted by grace and my heart's desire is to please Him. I want to live esteeming God higher than men, valuing His smile, His glory, His pleasure more than the smiles of men. 
Are you living in the fear of God? That's the re-evaluation question that must be asked this morning. And I don't believe there's anyone here this morning who can say, well, I fear, the God, I fear God to the degree that I want to. I, I would think you, there's a pride issue there. But I ask you not about the degree of your fear of God. I ask you, do you know something of this? Something of this fear of God. Is the fear of God his place of centrality? Is that a governing principle in your life? Do you yearn to please God? Do you want that in your life? That's the objective impact of the eternal gospel from eternity past. The triune God doing everything for his glory to forgive a sinner and to turn that heart to him. Is that evident in your life? A second re-evaluation question, am I glorifying God? Because the angel said with a loud voice, fear God and give Him glory. And again, not to the degree that you want it to be, but is the principle there at all? And maybe you say, I've heard that term all my life, glorify God. I don't know what it means. It comes from the Hebrew word kabod, which means weighty, heavy, massive, weighty. In fact, in the old days, the value of a gold coin was determined by the weight of it. The weightier it was, the more valuable it was. That's the Hebrew idea, weight and glory. The, the Greek word for glory is the word doxa, and it has, the word has to do with opinion. So you put these two guys to, uh, ideas together, it's the, the weight or the glory that we, in our opinion, assign to someone. The, the heaviness that we assign to someone. The question then becomes to evaluate in our lives, what is the weight or the heaviness that we assign to God in our lives? That's what it means to glorify Him. That's what you determine whether you're glorifying Him or not. How weighty is He in your life? How determining of a factor is He in your life? How diligent are you to respond to His glory in your life? Is He the preoccupation of your life? Let me say this again because I, I want to be clear. The main purpose of a believer is not just to get converted. That was not the plan in the eternal gospel in eternity past. That's far too shallow. That's far too narrow. That's foundational, but that's not the fullness of the gospel. The main purpose of a believer, the main purpose of an eternal God and an eternal gospel on a soul is that the believer fear God and glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How do you glorify God? Confessing sins to Him, fleeing to Christ. Is that a reality? By praising and worshiping and delighting in Him. Is that a, a reality in your life? By trusting Him and surrendering things in your life to Him, is that a reality in your life? By being zealous for His glory, by being humble, you maximize His weightiness by how shallow you are, by humility. Now again, no one here glorifies God to the extent they want to. But, is that a mark of grace in your life, that the eternal gospel has come home? And then lastly, the third thing. Are you a God-fearer? Do you glorify Him? Here's the third re-evaluation question. Am I worshiping God? 
Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Worship is simply bowing down before God. Again, it's an attitude of the heart, bowing down. It's an attitude of humility before His majesty, before His glory, before His weightiness. In spirit and in truth and in Christ. And honoring Him, praising Him. Making much of Him. Bowing down before the King in majesty. You can go back to the first vision we looked at last week, Psalm, or excuse me, Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. That vision, that future vision of the 144,000 around the throne singing a new song that, that the followers of the beast can't sing, even the angels can't sing it. Wow, what's the new song? Just like in Exodus, when God does something miraculous, powerfully to redeem and save, they get across, they sing a new song. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. When God does something we've never seen before, we create a new song. And these worshipers, they're worshiping God with a new song. God, by grace in Christ, has done this. He's done it all. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, we worship Him with a new song. That's a picture of worshiping here. If that kind of worship sounds foreign to you, if this kind of fearing God sounds foreign to you, if this kind of glorifying God sounds foreign to you. Maybe you've responded to a piece of the gospel. But the gospel's an eternal gospel about the glory of God. And if these things don't resonate in your life, there's no reason to believe you're a child of God. That's why this is the book of re-evaluation. It centers upon Christ. That's foundational but it produces a Godward orientation. So the angel comes and says, this is the first of three angels, judgment is coming, but it's mingled with grace. And while their time is now, fear God, glorify God, worship God. That's a true believer. That's a true follower of the Lamb. That's, how he, that's the effect of the eternal gospel from before the foundation of the world upon a soul produces. The eternal gospel. And I can't emphasize enough, the angel in verse 2 is said to come and speak these words with a loud voice. Why do we get loud? Because it's urgent. It's urgent. The angel saying, in effect, Covenant Life Church, we don't know time, but time is almost up. You who are followers of the beast, followers of the dragon, turn to your God before it's too late. This morning's about reevaluation. The message is not intended to throw doubt on your salvation, it's to uphold the truth of the eternal gospel. And now that the Spirit of God by grace, bring our lives under examination. Are our lives marked by fear of God, worship of God, and the glory of God? That's what the gospel produces.